actually a couple of studies that show that just eating a handful of nuts a day can decrease your chance of cardiovascular disease. Welcome to the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-hosts, Dr. Tony Sideri and Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hi, guys. Hey, Matt. What up, G? The Curbsiders is the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Today, the topic will be functional medicine. Now, this is an emerging trend in the field of medicine. It's been getting a lot of press lately and something that I've been interested in in the past few years. (laughs) If you're like me and you've been intrigued by functional medicine, I think you're really going to like our conversation with Dr. Youssef El-Yemen. On this episode, we'll be talking about functional medicine and how it can be applied in your everyday practice. Dr. El Yemen is a physician, entrepreneur, and author board certified in internal medicine and with a cross specialization in pediatrics. He was one of the first Institute of Functional Medicine certified functional medicine practitioners in the world. As the founder and medical director of Absolute Health, a primary care practice located in Ocala, Florida, he has successfully integrated an insurance-based functional medicine clinic into his practice. In addition, he has developed and introduced a pharmaceutical-grade line of supplements which, thanks to its success and high demand, is now available to the consumer both in his office and online. His education and practical experience make him one of the, most, one of the foremost experts in primary care functional medicine. Okay, so let's uh, let's start again, and I'm going to try to get the name right this time. El Yemen or El Yemen? El, El Yemen. El, El Yemen? Yemen. El Yemen. Yes. Doctor El Yemen. All right, I think it took me ten times. I gotta I gotta work on that. Okay. Hi, Doctor El Yemen. Hi, Doctor El Yemen. Thank you for hey. coming on the show. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna get that name right eventually. <laughs> I think we should keep this. Yeah, we should keep this in. Uh, okay. So I want to ask you, I, I, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And, and the first thing that we, we wanted to ask you is when people ask you what you do for a living, how do you answer that question? It, de- <laughs> it, it depends on my crowd. Um, if, it's, if it's somebody medical, I would, I would obviously speak to them differently than somebody non-medical. Uh, it, but usually I tell them that I am a physician. I'm an internist that takes care of patients that are 18 and older. I'm a pediatrician that takes care of 18 and younger. And I also practice something called functional medicine, which is a natural way of looking at things. And I heard that uh, you, you got into functional medicine pretty early. So how did you, how did you find that as a practice? I did. Well, it was, it was by mistake. Uh, I'm, in, I'm a medpeds doctor, like I mentioned, mm-hmm. and um, I did something crazy in the beginning. I actually opened up a practice on my own, and mm-hmm. um, I started, started uh, seeing patients. And in the beginning, you really don't have many patients, and it, it takes time to fill. And my brother, who was a family practice resident at the time, calls me one day all excited i'm the oldest of 15 by the way so we uh oh wow. yeah and we're all the same we're all hyper excited about things and um and and i think you gotta in order to be heard you have to be loud so we're all kind of loud but but anyway he called and he said have you heard about mesotherapy i said mesotherapy no what the heck is that and he says it's a way that you inject fat and the fat melts away 
and insurance doesn't cover it. You charge cash, and I mean, it's amazing that I have this attending, and he's doing it. You got to look into it. So I'm looking into it, and he starts looking into it, and he actually calls me the next day and says, look, I found this course on mesotherapy. Take a look at it. And I took a look at it. It was in Orlando, and I had really nothing to do. I only had a couple of patients in the beginning, so I went ahead, and I took the course. Now, the thing about the course is it was mesotherapy and bioidentical hormone replacement. I had no idea what hmm. bioidentical hormone replacement was. I had no idea, and I didn't want to participate in that. I just wanted to learn about mesotherapy. So I asked them. It was a very expensive course. It was like $3,000, and to me, that was a lot. I have since spent a lot more money on my, my education. However, at, at the time, it seemed like a lot, and I, I asked them, is there any way that I could just do the mesotherapy and not do this bioidentical hormone stuff? And they said, nope, you have to do both. So I went to the course, and I ended up spending the day learning that you inject the fat about a million times, and it may decrease the fat just a little bit. And at the end of the day, they gave me a little disclaimer. They said, you know, if uh, you need to ask your your malpractice carrier whether this would be covered or not because some malpractice carriers will will drop you oh. so and it turns out the next day i did call uh or then that next monday i called my malpractice carrier and they said are you doing mesotherapy like no are you sure you're oh no good because we'll drop you hmm. wow but because i spent a lot of money for the course yeah i ended up sitting around for the bioidentical hormone replacement and i course, which I never, I didn't even know what that was. And they, they spoke about something called adrenal fatigue and adrenal fatigue is, is it's like a subclinical Addison's disease where your adrenal gland is due to stress is not functionally functioning properly. But if you do the standard testing for Addison's disease, you're not going to pick anything up. And they, they had some solutions they had and, 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 to that, and fatigue is a huge problem for us in primary care. And um, the the other thing it talked about the reason that the reason that drugs are so predominantly promoted you you cannot patent a natural substance, mm -hmm. and because and it takes about a billion dollars for you to go from FDA from the beginning testing to FDA approval. So what happens is is that that nobody. Since you can't patent a natural substance, there is not the same type of funding to patent or to to study natural substances. So instead of instead of studying estradiol, they do huge studies looking at something similar to estradiol, to mm -hmm. something that is not that is foreign to the body. So that little conflict of interest actually mm -hmm. it opened up my eyes to that. But anyway, so for, so I went back to the practice, had some patients with fatigue, had some patients with really bad menopausal symptoms, and started slowly trying to practice. And um, eventually, I, I I ended up um, I, I found out that that the FDA didn't regu re regulate supplements, and that just because it said that it had CoQ10 in it didn't mean that the it actually had CoQ10 or whatnot. So I ended up um, opening. Um, open an account with a, a supplement company, and from there I I started hearing the, the term functional medicine and integrative medicine. I started giving talks locally, to, uh, a way to promote myself, and I realized that that the questions the patients were asking were really not about drugs. They were really asked 
asking more about um, natural supplements. And instead of doing the typical doctor thing where you say there's nothing to that, I end up saying, I end up, um, I end up saying, well, I'm not sure about that. Let me write it down. Give me, uh, call my office in the morning, and um, here's my office number. And mm-hmm. uh, and and when I find an answer, I'll give it to you. But somehow I stumbled across the Institute for Functional Medicine. I ended up taking a course in functional medicine. I was hooked. I've been I, I've been doing that ever since. And how how many years ago was all that? It was about eight years ago. Wow. Yeah, eight to nine years ago. Actually, it's almost almost a decade in practice. So, so I just want to ask you a question about what you were saying about uh, not being able to patent natural um, um, remedies. So, is this akin to saying, say, I you know, I, I give my patients melatonin instead of giving them remelteon. So you can't you can't patent melatonin, but they you know remelteon is is it's um, rosarum. So essentially, a a semi-synthetic. Uh, melatonin receptor agonist is that is that kind of what you're saying the same idea okay right so you can't patent melatonin so if if it takes around a billion dollars to get fda approval right who really has the kind of money to to study the that natural substance and then someone else will turn around use your study and sell it now you can patent a dose though but you can't patent but hey instead of doing five milligrams they would they could do four milligrams so, so, it, it, so you're saying that essentially that if we had the money to study these natural substances, maybe we wouldn't need the pharmaceutical company if we could just study it sufficiently. Yeah, right? if we had, if we had the money, and, and and let me. So here's another thing. Thank God for the internet. So I went through my 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 internal medicine and pediatric residency hearing over and over that there's no science and there's no studies behind natural substances. And that's far mm-hmm. from true. I mean, if all you, all, all it takes Agreed. is a Google search of, of PubMed and there's tons, there's studies, there's studies on melatonin, there's studies right. on multiple supplements. So, right. you, so, so we want to look at number one, we, we look at safety studies because Number one, do no harm, but then we need efficacy studies. But you're not going to get the large studies with thousands and thousands of patients, and um, you, you're going to have it's going to have to be more uh, smaller studies, and and, um, and with not the same amount of funding. But but there right. there is research out there, right? I I think something that that I, I frequently talk to other colleagues and residents about um, is the association with iron deficiency and mood disorder. Um, it's a psychotic disorder. You see that more in pediatric patients, but also with restless leg syndrome. There was an interesting article, I think it was, if I recall correctly, in the uh, Archives of Internal Medicine that compared, that, w- it w- that, that looked at uh, iron supplementation and compared it um, with placebo. And I think I, it was with one of the uh, dopamine receptor agonists. Um, and essentially it was statistically significant, statistically superior for those with low, low to normal ferritin. I think the ferritin was anywhere from 40 to 60. I'd have to go back and look at the study myself, but I mean, I, I think it's kind of highlights what you're saying in that a lot of the, uh, medications we, we might typically use like Requip and Mirapex might not be as effective as just using the natural supplement for these patients that might be the uh, underlying pathophysiology leading to whatever disease process it is that we're looking at. So I, I, right, I think right. you, you're, you're on to something here, 
But I think the concern that a lot of us as physicians have is, you know, the, the paucity of studies. Um, certainly there's, there are studies out there, like, like you alluded to. Uh, if I were to log into my NCBI and show you all the studies that I have saved from PubMed, I, you know, I, I think it would make someone's head blow up just because I've, I've got hundreds and hundreds of studies looking at, you know, I, 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 dare I say stupid things, but <laughs> most physicians may look at the, the studies I have saved and say, oh, that's completely useless. You know, i got multiple studies on things like uh, even, even ginkgo biloba, um, CoQ10, um, any, any common herb that someone mentions to me, I'll, I'll, I'll try to find every study about it, save a folder, and then save all those studies. And interestingly, most of these studies are not from your, your, your large journals, not JAMA, not Archives of Internal Medicine, not, um, not uh, New England Journal. These are all smaller studies. And unfortunately, a lot of this data is being overlooked. And I think that that's one of the concerns that we have as physicians looking at someone who's in functional medicine is that just, we just don't have these studies that are coming to the forefront. Right. So, well, well, here's the thing, too. So let's say you have a study. And, and there, there are studies. The larger journals are starting to get supplement studies and, and, and some of these natural studies. Right. So it was, but, but here's the thing. You have, you, okay, you have a study the study was positive. That's great, but that's only as good as the messenger. How are you going to get the information out there? Well, if you're a big pharmaceutical company and you can afford to spend a billion dollars to research a medicine, well, then you can afford to get these reps. In four years of Medicaid's residency, almost every lunch was sponsored by a drug company. So when you hear that over and over and over and over again, and you're seeing that you think that that's the only option, and it's, it, that's far from the truth. But let me – I want to talk about restless leg syndrome So since, since you're all physicians and you guys see this as well. So here's, here's something. This is where the detective work comes in. All right. Mm-hmm. So if you look at – are you familiar with SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. So about 60 to 70 percent of people with, with restless leg probably have SIBO. And one of the things that happens, what, what's happening in SIBO is your small intestine that should be more sterile than the large intestine gets filled with bad bacteria or good bacteria. And when they eat foods that have FODMAPs in it, which is specific types of uh, carbohydrates, they eat the FODMAPs and it creates uh, a gas and it, uh, and it creates toxins that mm. can – and it decreases absorption. And decreasing absorption causes iron deficiency. However, there is a link between SIBO and restless leg syndrome to the point that uh, there there was a study. Now, this is a smaller study. There was a study of of 10 patients, and all 10 of them had restless leg syndrome. And all they did is treat them for SIBO with an antibiotic protocol. And 8 of 10 of them had the restless leg syndrome significantly go away and there was a there and um, a couple of them it just went away completely and I've tried this out in practice where I have somebody with really bad restless leg syndrome and I either give them herbs to help with with bad bacteria or I give them an antibiotic course for treating SIBO some of them have no abdominal problems at all and their restless leg syndrome just disappears that is fascinating. Which, so, uh, which, yeah, which it is. do you use? Glycine? Well, it, uh, I'm trying now. Now I don't know if you saw the, the, the current FDA warning that we should need to stay away from fluoroquinolones. Did you guys see that? Yeah. 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 yeah it's pretty, pretty crazy. But, pretty but anyway, um, we, we kind of knew that we, we kind of knew that fluoroquinolones Those were being overdone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, the, the rifaximine is a, yeah. Is, I, it's interesting. Rifaxamine. I was wondering if you would say the rifaxin because I have a patient with SIBO 
who GI started on Rifaxin. I thought that was pretty crazy. Interesting. And well, now the GI doctors used to laugh when I mentioned SIBO, and now all of this, and this is something I knew because I'm doing functional medicine, and now, right. now they're prescribing it and talking like they've been doing this the whole time. Where right. I talk about low FODMAP diet, and of course, what is a specialist? What are we trained to say if you don't know? Because you're the expert, you you have to know. Oh, there's nothing to that. There's no research. Yeah. I, there was an oncologist. Yeah. I was telling the oncologist, "What do you?" He, uh, he was he was trying to tell me how there's nothing to this alternative medicine at all. And I said, "Well, have you seen the data on calprotectin?" And he's like, "I've seen the data, but it's not really strong." And I'm like, "Do you know what calprotectin is?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, the supplement calprotectin." Now, calprotectin is a stool marker. <laughs> it is not a supplement, but it's a right. stool marker. And, it, and if your level is over 150, it's like 99% sure that you have inflammatory yeah. bowel. It's very yeah. sensitive and specific. And we and were doing uh, calprotectin yeah. before these GI doctors are now doing calprotectin. Yep, that's, yep. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, yeah the, the GI doctor actually talked about calprotectin just a couple of weeks ago. And, I, and you know, it kind of caught me off guard because I actually wasn't aware of it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, oh, it's great. If you're trying to determine whether this person has inflammatory bowel or irrit- irritable bowel just mean it's like saying I have fever. Irritable bowel is just like what is what is causing the fever? What is causing this irritable bowel? That just means we haven't got to the root cause of it yet. We haven't diagnosed it yet. So you do this the this so so when somebody has if you want to differentiate between other reasons for their intestinal problem and inflammatory bowel, a stool calprotectin, which our standard labs are checking, can tell mm-hmm. you with very, very accurate. It's very sensitive and specific. It's like around 98%. Don't quote me on that. But it's... It. So what, what, what do you recommend reading to learn more about functional medicine? I mean, the, the more that you're talking about this, the more I'm realizing that this is kind of what we're doing already, just kind of blinded. Yeah, so so when I when I first kind of delved into the integrative medicine, alternative medicine, I don't actually don't like the term alternative because I feel like it's they're they're all complementary. But I started researching. I started looking up looking up different supplements and start made my started making files and and I okay. actually before before I started with the Institute for Functional Medicine, I heard about the Institute for Functional Medicine's blog, um, and. And I ended up going on it, – it's kind of it, – it, not a blog. It's really – it's a chat group. And I went on and I started asking people questions and I started realizing that, that you know, there are other people that are doing this. I'm not alone because most of us think that, you're, that they're alone when they start, tr- start approaching things this way. And then, and then when, I, when I actually went to the Institute for Functional Medicine, I went to their f- first module. There's, there's different modules that you're supposed to go through to be certified. I realized, wow, I have these geniuses that have been doing yeah. this for longer than I have and that they are all putting their minds together and they're all, they're, all, they're all bringing the research to us. And now I speak for the Institute for Functional Medicine, but definitely on the shoulder of giants. And who, yeah. who, were, who started functional medicine? It's there. There's uh, a researcher called Jeff Bland and his wife. They're the ones that coined the term functional medicine. But the way I understand it, there was a group of like-minded providers and practitioners that used to get together and they used to have conferences and lectures and whatnot. And one day, Jeff Bland came up with the name, and it stuck. And integrative medicine hmm. is another term I've heard heard used. Is that similar? 
So functional medicine is a little bit more specific. We have something called the functional medicine matrix. So it, I, what, what, what I can gather is that with functional medicine, we, there, there, there are three different principles. Number one is that you're a product of your genes and environment. And these, this is all science. This is not, this is not some theory. This is, this is, scientifically, we know about epigenetics. We know that you're a product of your genes and environment. You can't change your genes. You can change your environment. And you can have identical twins. One has a genetic disease and one doesn't. Or if something really is programmed in your genes, you would think that at the same exact time, that person will end up with the same genetic disorder. So, for example, at 49 and one day, both twins will end up with breast cancer if it's a genetic breast cancer. Well, well, well. what happens? You can have one person get it at 30 and one person get it at 70 or one person not get it at all. So what's the difference? It's the environment. So we realize right. we, the, your antecedents, you have your antecedents, which uh, – and then um, we look at, for triggers. Whenever a disease manifests, we look at triggers. And um, but then there's seven underlying imbalances, and they could be worded differently. But with functional medicine, these seven underlying balances are are you can really fit any disease into one of those categories. You can fit different symptoms into those categories. Um, throughout history, if you look at Chinese medicine and and Greek medicine and Middle Eastern medicine, if you look at at really the the pioneers the the, the of, of medicine there was always there was always it balances there were there were imbalances and you had to rebalance the system and unfortunately what medicine ended up doing is saying those were just invalid there are no imbalances you you basically have a lipitor imbalance and you, a simvastatin imbalance and alprazolam imbalance and they forgot the root cause mm-hmm. But we study these imbalances in med school and we, and we study them the first two years of medical school in particular. And then we just forget about them and think, what drug do I take for these symptoms? And basically, right. yeah. So, so the, what are the, the imbalances? They're, I think of them in a, in, in a more – in a logical way. So I think, first of all, what is it that your body needs to live? Well, you need nutrients. You need – and how do you get the nutrients in the body? Well, through assimilation. So you can have a problem with assimilation, either a problem with the gut and poor absorption, or a problem with your lungs, so you're not being able to bring oxygen into the system. Or maybe you're getting certain things on your skin because we can assimilate through our skin. Our skin okay. is highly absorbable. So you can have an imbalance of assimilation. So as when your body when your body takes it in, then how does your body get it to different to the different areas? Well, through a, through transport. So if you have a problem with transport or transportation, you can also that can also cause disease. So how do we? How normally you have the fat soluble and water soluble macro and micronutrients. Fat soluble, they don't mix well in in water. So how do they get to distal parts of the body? Well, through that's that's where our lipid panels come in. Our body will make these lipoproteins, LDL and HDL and whatnot. So if you have a transport problem, that can lead to disease. And in order for it to be transported, well, you need good structure holding it up. So if you have a structural problem, well, that's another imbalance. So osteoarthritis is an example of that. Um, Alzheimer's disease can be an example of that. And if the structure is off, if, if, or, or while that structure is holding everything up, 
then your body has to be able to defend itself against against attack against viri and fun- fungi and bacteria that may be wanting to penetrate so how does it do that through the immune system through defense and repair so you can have an imbalance of your immune system so defense if so are you guys with me so far i'm with you yes yeah all right so what <laughs> does the immune system do it defends you against these organisms that try invade but it also repairs our body is always breaking down and rebuilding and our brain has synaptoblasts and synaptoclasts synaptoclasts are rebuilding the synapses synaptoblasts i'm sorry synaptoclasts are breaking down synapses synaptoblasts are building them so if you build break down more than you build you end up getting degeneration of the brain the bone has osteoblasts and osteoclasts you have an imbalance of that you have osteoporosis so so when you have an imbalance of that repair mechanism, that also can lead to disease. And while that's all happening, you need energy. You need energy to run. So you can have an ox redox imbalance. If you look at the path of physiology, I, I study the same papers everyone else does. I read up to date as one of my major sources of information. But when I look at pulmonary fibrosis and I see it's a, an ox redox imbalance and there's data that suggests that using N-acetylcysteine, which becomes glutathione and it's our, our body's major antioxidant, and that that can actually slow down pulmonary fibrosis, that's functional medicine. But where did I read it? I read it up to date. So you can have a problem with the making of energy, right? And as your body's making energy, you're amassing different toxins. We have those toxins, and now we have tons of xenobiotics. There's over 80,000 chemicals in our environment, and they're all supposed to be safe. At sources. But what happens when you have chemicals at really small doses in your body? How does your body get rid of it? Well, through biotransformation and elimination. So biotransformation and elimination is it, the liver helps with that. The, the liver breaks down and, and uh, or the liver is able to, to, to turn those toxins from fat soluble to water soluble. Also, you have, you have the microbiome that is needed to help with, uh, with, with detoxifying. And then of course you have the kidneys that, that help with detoxification as well. So, so, any one of those imbalances can lead to disease. But when I, as a functional medicine provider, I don't look and say this person has Alzheimer's so they have a deficiency of Aricep. I say this person has Alzheimer's. Uh, Alzheimer's seems to be an ox redox problem. It's a mitochondrial disorder. So let me create a mitochondrial plan. Let me, let me, let's, what can we do to make the mitochondria healthy? Um, the other thing is you can have one imbalance that will lead to another, which will lead to a l- another. So we can work one imbalance or we can work the other and they may get a little better, but it's not till we find out what the primary imbalance was that we can, that we can um, really get the patient better. Now, all of those imbalances are centered around one psychological, spiritual, and emotional state, which is extremely important. I, I, have, a, I have a patient who had really bad inflammatory bowel disease and she i would i worked on her gut i put her on probiotics clean put her on elimination diet and she was getting better she's still not there and she was tired and i worked on her adrenals and she got better and 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 i just kept working i started liver working on liver i'm like all right let's try to cut out the chemicals and maybe try some of these supplements that that have found to help with detoxification by transformation she got a little better and then she disappeared and I don't see her for a year. And a year later, I'm like, 
doing? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Are you lying to me? I mean, how, how is this possible? And she go, I said, what happened? And she said, I divorced my husband. And that, <laughs> that toxic relationship was causing all of her problems. It, that stress was, was throwing at least three systems off. So, so, so now you have, you, you, we, we realize that there's seven underlying imbalances. We know they're surrounded around your psychological, spiritual, emotional state. And we know that we have, have genetic predispositions that can push us to those imbalances. And by the way, those imbalances end up becoming disease, and that's where we usually want to treat it. But we want to go as far uphill, upstream as we possibly can when we're, when we're managing patients. But then what is – so what is your environment? Because it's genes and environment. What you eat, what you drink, exercise – your sleep, your stress, your relationships, mm-hmm. and your beliefs, toxic beliefs. So you're, a functional medicine provider is always going to have a prescription for the patient, and it's going to be centered around those, the environment. And I, I want to ask you, you mentioned the functional medicine matrix, and I've seen this on the, on the website, and it looks like it would be incredibly time-intensive to fill that out. So what when you start in a functional medicine office visit, what is it like in how how long how much time do you have and do you have a multidisciplinary team helping you to do that so the the institute for functional medicine created something called the living matrix and it's a way that patients can fill out forms and questionnaires and then it will plug it into the matrix for us but honestly for us that have been doing this for a while what a lot of us end up doing is we we take a history and as we take the history our mind is just basically that matrix is memorized. Mm-hmm. After a mm-hmm. while, I'm not really filling out the matrix every single time, but I'm thinking, huh, that sounds awfully mitochondrial. Wait a minute. You have, you have muscle aches. You have, you have migraines. Um, you have fatigue. That sounds pretty mitochondrial. Let's focus there. I'd, so I'd like I, to... Go ahead, Stuart. Just just to recap, I want to make sure I have all this down right. The seven imbalances, I have the first one was assimilation of nutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, second one was defense and repair. That includes immunity and, and inflammation. The third one was energy with oxidation and redox reactions, so mitochondrial. Um, the fourth one was biotransformation and elimination of uh, so liver, kidneys, etc. Um, the fifth one I had was, cir- was communication and circulation. That's hormonal and neuro- neurotransmitter imbalances. The sixth one was transport and transportation. Yeah, so it doesn't go. I I kind of numbered it, and I forgot to mention communication. So, okay. I, so in order to explain it to my patients, I give a lot of public talks as well. So I try to explain it to them in lay terms. So that's my okay. explanation in, in lay term. But but communication, I usually mention after defense and repair because the, the so okay. communication is your hormones. So your hormones and your okay. neuro okay. hormones, your communicators like your interleukins. So so part of the way that the immune system communicates is using communication. Um, but also, but also your hormones, you like your thyroid and your sex hormones and whatnot is a communication imbalance too. Yeah. Thank you. I forgot about the communication, but the number is not important. Okay. The number I came up That's with, right. a, a, I came up with a way that I just think of, all right, what do you need to live? You need nutrients. All right. What do you need to do? Transport them. Once you transport them, then what? Well, you need structure holding everything up. So you have destruction of your thyroid disease of your thyroid. Right. Well, you end up with thyroid disease. You can't make hormones. But the the number the 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 sequence is irrelevant. Understood. I, I think we should uh, go through some of the 
the applications that maybe our listeners and ourselves, we can start using in our practice. So I, I do want to talk about the common things. You should ask Matt about his FODMAP diets. Okay. So, oh, yes. so <laughs> yes. my, my father had, uh, my father had some, some gut issues and he, he was the one that actually educated me about FODMAP because he basically, like you were saying, he went to Western medicine doctors and they were, they were basically telling him, okay, you need more antibiotics. You need more of this, more of that. He went to his family practitioner and his family doc said, I think you need to try the FODMAP diet, just kind of completely reset everything. And it, it, it worked for him. And I've actually in the past two years done it on several patients and, uh, had really good results. Like it takes a motivated patient to be able to follow that. But oh, yeah. I think things like FODMAP, um, if, if there's other ones you can mention, uh, we can, I think those would be really helpful to our, our listeners. Now the FODMAP, I just Google search Stanford FODMAP diet and print out the PDF and it has a, a column of low FODMAP and high FODMAP foods. And anyone mm -hmm. that's having gut issues or bloating, I give that to them and people mm -hmm. love it. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. And I like that handout in particular because it adds some credibility to it. This isn't some quack diet. This right. is something, this is a scientific right. thing here. And JAMA did a, a review on IBS in 2015 and they, they included the FODMAP in there. They, you know, the, the evidence level rating wasn't like, it wasn't like the highest level rating, but they said, it, but if you look at drug studies, a lot of drugs are like you were saying, alluding to earlier, they're, they're pretty slim margins that, that some of these drugs get approved by and, and with a lot of backing from pharmaceutical companies. So I think that, you know, people that are quick to turn their nose at supplements or some of these alternative things have to realize that some of the medicines that we are using, you know, that we consider Western medicine don't have the greatest evidence either. They, they don't. And, and, and here's what people don't realize are, so our mitochondria, if you look at the mitochondria, mitochondria are, are called the powerhouse of the cell. Mitochondria mm. are what help us take oxygen and nutrients and turn them into energy. And ATP is that energy. And if you look at mitochondria, they look very similar to bacterial cells. If you look at our cell, our cell has, has its nucleus and then it has different organelles. And its nucleus, in, in, in its nucleus, it has our DNA. And our DNA is taken from both mommy and daddy, and our DNA is wrapped up for the most part in, part in, in something called histone form, and it's in, a, it's in a protective state. It's in a state that is resistance, resistant to reactive oxygen species. It's resistant to different toxins. And only a small percent of that DNA is open and is, is transcribing and is doing its thing at any given moment. Like you don't need, at the tip of your finger, you don't need the gene awake that says you have, a, you have blue eyes or you have brown eyes or, or whatnot. So there's only a certain amount awakened. And then when it's needed, our body will wake up certain parts of the DNA. So for example, so for example, if, if let's say that there is a foreign invader, well, our immune cells can, st will, can, will, can start turning on their, their DNA that help fight against bacteria. And, and when the insult is gone, well, it goes right back to sleep again. Well, our mitochondria, which may actually be prokaryotic, prokaryotic cells that ended up entering a eukaryotic cell and creating this this symbiosis where where 
where they, they live together in harmony and which may have been what allowed us to exist as, as, as animals. Um, but anyway, that mitochondria has its own DNA. And I think only 3 to 5% of the DNA in the mitochondria actually it come from, from dad. Most of it is going to come from mom because you get your organelles from mom. So, so here's the deal with mitochondria. Mitochondria have its own DNA for the most part. And mitochondrial DNA are not, are, are, are not in histone form. They're awake at all times and they're, they're very susceptible to, to toxic damage. And think about where they're positioned. Mitochondria, the mitochondrial DNA is in the mitochondria. And as we are making energy from oxygen, we're creating free radicals and those free radicondrial DNA. So if you don't have good antioxidant support, then your mitochondria can get damaged. But what else can get damaged? When they study, when they study drugs, when they're looking at these drugs that we give chronically to patients for years and years and years, they don't check and see if it damages mitochondrial DNA. So if you look at hmm. mitochondrial diseases like Alzheimer's disease, and there's actually a very good there, – there was a very good article on this. Um, if you've PubMed um, – I, I can't remember the, the, the title, but, but I, can, I, I can look it up for you later. But, but anyway, so, so they're, they're not studying it. And, and now you have these mitochondria that are not in histone form that are susceptible to free radical damage. Hmm. And then you have all of these chemicals that are, are in our foods and acceptable. And, and, and I mean, you have fire retardants and they're, they're in different products. And our body, we're just bombarded with chemicals. And those, D, those DNA are just sitting there. Now, here's the deal. If you look at the mitochondrial disorders that we know of, you have Alzheimer's, you have migraines, you have Parkinson's disease, you have chronic fatigue, you have fibromyalgia. All of these are thought to be mitochondrial disorders. Now, what if it takes what if what if a drug that you give a patient knock out about one percent of your mitochondria a year, and they study it for three years and say, "You know what this is completely fine. this drug is not an issue and then they and right. then they get FDA approval now patients are on it for ten years, and ten years later they knock out enough mitochondria so that they actually present with the fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and all these other mitochondrial disorders. So, so, so yeah, it's, it's scary. It's scary giving, giving patients these medication for long amounts of time. I mean, look at the statin studies. They put them, they put them on for two years and then they end up saying, oh, gee, we found our endpoint. So let's stop at 18 months. Is that really enough to give us safety profiles? Yeah. And then they, and then, then they Especially look back and say it's it. causing diabetes and, Alzheimer's, like that. yeah, and diabetes type two. Those are mitochondrial disorders, right? Due to mitochondrial toxicity and maybe sucking out CoQ10, which is a mitochondrial nutrient. Yeah, you're making me rethink everything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it, was, it sounds like you guys already have rethinked a lot of these things. You know, it, it's interesting because most of what you're saying, kind of, yes, it makes me rethink everything, but it almost sounds like this is what we what we should have been doing from the from the first place. I think Hippocrates would be proud of you. So Dr. Uh, I, I, I could only hope. <laughs> so when you're, when you're treating patients with high blood pressure or diabetes in your practice, are you using traditional Western medications in, and with, in combination with these other, uh, supplements and other non-pharmacologic therapies? Yeah, I do. 
I do. Now, there's certain I have my preferences of antihypertensive medication. So the first step is we need to get the blood pressure under control. But then we need to take, I mean, let's look a little bit further. I, if you look at current guidelines, we should probably be doing 24-hour blood pressure monitoring on patients because, if they, well, if they don't dip, if they're not dippers, they have a high incidence of all-cause mortality. We, we so, yeah. Well, we if you that. look at the data, and guess what causes you to not dip? Melatonin. If you don't have enough right. melatonin, that can cause you to non-dip. And what gives you, what causes melatonin deficiency? Beta blockers. And then what else is melatonin? <laughs> what else will a melatonin deficiency cause? Well, if you don't have enough melatonin, it, it turns out that 400 times the amount of melatonin that's made in the brain is actually made in the gut. And it causes small, lower esophageal sphincter yeah. constriction. And actually, there's, there, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but if you PubMed it, there's a protocol getting people off PPIs using melatonin. Yeah, five milligrams twice daily. It's a, there's a study that looks at it's 21 patients in each arm, um, and they, they treated them, I think, with, with tryptophan, uh, melatonin, and placebo with a PPI. The PPI was, was Prilosec and showed that those patients who were given melatonin, um, that th these are patients that had induced ulcers in their stomach by giving 2,000 milligrams of aspirin. Those patients who were given the melatonin had 100% cure rate versus what placebo, I think, was about 60 70% cure rate. Um, the, I think the L-tryptophan was about was about eighty ninety percent, but it was statistically significant for the melatonin five milligrams twice daily, and part of that is thought to be that that melatonin is almost a, I think it, they, the thought is that it's a it's either pre or pro drug for ghrelin um, to help to decrease acid production stomach acid production, so and and then also iron deficiency can also lead to deficiency in in, in melatonin because well because of the uh, I think it's it's not phenylalanine hydroxylase. It's uh, tryptophan hydroxylase. It, iron is a cofactor in uh, phenylalanine hydroxylase, and tryptophan hydroxylase, and in uh, uh, tyrosine hydroxylase. So uh, again, kind of also ties yeah, in. Yeah, and you need your B vitamins as well. So actually, Absolutely. there's another study that it. So one of the problems with PPIs is yeah, they take it for two weeks, and um, and because it says take it for two weeks, but then when you're not making enough, when you're not making enough um, acid, the body's like, what the hell is going on? And it starts right. increasing gastrin levels. Right. And then gastrin goes so high that when you stop your PPI, it's going to hurt more than when you put it, went on it in the first place. So there's, there's studies if, that, that look at using melatonin in, as a bridge and they they were right. able to wean a significant amount of people off of the PPI if you did melatonin for about they said about ten days. I usually wait about about thirty days on both melatonin and a PPI, and then start weaning off the PPI. And they actually use complexes because is there a dose of melatonin? You need so I, I just want to say I, I misspoke. It's melatonin decreases ghrelin concentration. No, it's not a pre-pro drug, um, but decreases ghrelin. Okay. Is there a dose of melatonin or, or is there a – where do you tell your patients to get melatonin from? So we have pharmaceutical-grade companies that we deal with. Mm. So we provide the supplements in the office, and, and, oh. and, it, and, and it all depends on what we're trying to treat. Um, I think my original point, though, was that you can have a melatonin deficiency that's causing patients to not dip – at night, so their blood pressure is not mm. dipping at night, and that can cause strokes and heart attacks and whatnot. But also, reflux can cause sleep apnea. So then now, so so 
and and people with GERD tend to also have insomnia. So if you think of these diagnoses that in internal medicine, we would just kind of list this person has insomnia, this person Mm -hmm. has GERD, this person has sleep apnea. So you're you're strapping a mask to these guys and you're like, they're, they're, and, and you're also giving them three or four drugs, which probably cause more problems in the long run. And where the problem, the key here was that the, the patient, for one reason or other, wasn't making melatonin. So if a patient's not making melatonin, why are they not making melatonin? Well, let's take it a step back. Well, you, you kind of mentioned part of part of the pathway, but well, you need serotonin to make melatonin. Right. And if you don't, if you don't have, how do we get serotonin? Well, our body uses. We go back a step. Five HTP. Where's five HTP come from? Tryptophan. So if you're not eating enough protein, then you're not in, in your diet. So if the diet is deficient in protein, and most diets are deficient in protein, unfortunately, and that mm-hmm. where you don't have enough stomach acid to break down the amino acids, you're not going to get your tryptophan, and the tryptophan is not going to become 5-HTP and is not going to become serotonin and not become melatonin. So we kind of – so with functional medicine, yeah, we'll use the drug, but then we kind of go as far upstream as we possibly can and work on it. If you – they exercise. Exercise pushes branch-chain amino acids in your muscles, increasing the amount of tryptophan available in your your blood, which goes into the brain and then becomes the 5-HTP and serotonin and melatonin. So, so, and also if your serotonin is low due to those other factors, then what's going to end up happening, substance P is going to go up and we know that our fibromyalgia patients have high substance P and that causes small insults to cause large amounts of pain. Mm-hmm. I got to say, you, you, you sound like someone that, that I could certainly sit down and have a cup of coffee with. <laughs> Um, Let's which is do it, man. <laughs> it's like everything that you're saying is what I've been banging my head, my hand on the desk about for the past few years, and unfortunately, I you know I, I, you kind of think that you're the only person who's who's singing this gospel, um, and it certainly doesn't sound like it. Oh, but, my uh, first. My first, the, there's a course called AFMCP that mm-hmm. Functional Medicine um, Institute puts on, and it's applying functional medicine to your practice. It's a full week. Mm. It's five days. Man, I felt like I was Harry Potter at, at Hogwarts. It was just, <laughs> I wasn't alone. It was so amazing. And all these people, and they knew way more than I did. Like, mm. I, thought I, I, I thought I was pretty dang smart. The thing is that I always think of the old me. I always think of how, <laughs> how not smart I was. But 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 in the moment, you always feel like, man, I got this. I I know. Right. But um. But yeah, I recommend the AFMCP to anybody, any provider that's that's interested in you, in this type of approach. So I I think since we have the topic up, so you said there you took a five day course. What's the cost there? Is it thousands of dollars for for the? I course? got it pulled up right here. Okay, here it is. It's um, it's thirty three fifty. Okay, three thousand three hundred and fifty dollars and two hundred fifty dollars for the textbooks. So it's at uh, Austin, Texas, or Baltimore, Maryland. That's the most expensive module, and then what they do is they kind of break it down into the different, the okay. different. So this is going to give you that'll give you a great overview, and then afterwards, well, then you can do the GI module. So yeah, the microbiome. Everybody's like so excited about the microbiome. I was talking about the microbiome like eight years ago, <laughs> so it's not like a new thing. Yeah. It's all of a sudden it became a new thing, but it's the research has been there. Um, that, so then they talk about there's one. There's a module on hormones, immune system. There's an there's a module on um, cardiometabolic disease, which I'm actually one of the faculty there. Um, so so you end up going to their individual modules, and the individual modules are I think they're a couple grand. Okay, 
And but I'll tell you, when I leaving, finishing my internal medicine and peds and starting my own practice, to spend this kind of money on education, just it wasn't something it, it wasn't something that I ever really imagined. But once mm-hmm. I once you spend money on it, you're hooked. Now I just spend money left and right. <laughs> <laughs> and how many how many months or years does it take to get certified in functional medicine? I think you can do it in about two years now. I since I was the first graduating class, we were just waiting for not, modules to be created, mm. and then wow. and then take the test. Mm. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, this is really interesting. I uh, I think I think a lot of our listeners are going to be are going to be looking into this for themselves, and uh, certainly certainly I'll be looking into it. But it's it's just nice to mix mix them all together and create a true customized. Tr- Treatment plan throughout residency. They told us, "Yeah, individualized medicine, individualized medicine." At the end of the day, you could teach a monkey how to treat thyroid disease the way they want to treat thyroid disease. What do you mean individualized medicine? We're lo- just looking at number TSHs, we're diagnosing them, and then we're just titrating a synthro- our our, um, our T4. Right, so right. they they say individualized, but but with functional medicine, I truly believe I can I can practice individualized medicine where every patient is their own person. They have their own reason their their own pathophysiology for the so-called disease that they have. I do want to ask you a little bit about the setup of your practice and and how the the insurance and reimbursement works for people who are thinking of switching their business model to this. It so how does how do the insurance companies view some of these things you do is it out of pocket or do they reimburse? So there are some things out of pocket. Uh, insurance doesn't like paying for supplements. However, with medical necessity, a lot of them have their flex spending accounts, and they can purchase their supplements if I write a medical necessity letter. Um, you'll see the functional medicine model. There's different models out there. There's people that are taking only cash. They're taking 500 to $1,000 per hour. Personally, I take insurance, and um, I ended up realizing that I needed a team, so I kind of created a team. So for the for the... The primary care arm of our practice, we have four providers, two, uh, myself, I'm an MD, we, I have a DO, and I have uh, two nurse practitioners. And we also have two health coaches at the office. One is an exercise physiologist, one is an ex-chiropractor assistant, um, and a massage therapist. So so what, what I'll do, we have a lot of handouts and forms. Our first visit is going to be longer, about half an hour to an hour, and we'll try to kind of figure out what the imbalance is. And then the follow-up really is just going to depend on how early they are in their treatment plan. But it's amazing. One thing I like about the Institute for Functional Medicine is they have so many handouts that they're, they're always creating different forms that there are tools in our toolbox. So I can tell them, you know what, I want you to do an elimination diet. Here's a handout. I want you to read it. Follow up in two weeks with my my coach or my my nutrition specialist, and he'll be able to sit, spend half an hour to an hour with them, and then I'll walk in for the required amount of of office visit that that is needed for billing and I walk in and, and bill for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so using coaches and we also, we have a, a, a lecture room in our office. So we do a lot of group visits and lectures as well. So there, you can do there, you, you can, there are creative things that, that you can do to, in order to, um, to practice this. You, you can do it through an insurance based model. Now I okay. we ha- we do hyperbaric oxygen therapy that's usually not covered that's going to be cash we do neurobiofeedback that's not covered that's going to be cash but um 
but for the standard office visits, we we are billing insurance. Okay. And one of the big things that that we struggle with in our practice is is getting patients to do anything that we tell them, especially if it means they're gonna. You're mentioning elimination diet. Uh, getting patients to follow diets. How how do you get? How do you motivate your patients and get them to actually listen to you? Because that seems to be a big problem for most people. Yeah, I th- I think I think it's it's what I've found is it's all in a large percentage of it is in us. It's in our expectations and our beliefs. I had a doctor in the same before before we moved to the bigger facility, but when I was solo, there was a doctor in the same building as me that used to he used to tell his patients, "Look, your cholesterol's up." And what I'm supposed to do is tell you to go on a diet. But you know what? I'm not going to diet. You're not going to diet. So you can diet or I can give you this drug. And guess what? And the patient takes the drug. But if you say, look, this is what I need you to do. Your small density LDL is elevated, which as we speak, and your inflammation is up as we speak. You're packing on cholesterol. At any moment, this thing can pop. We need to get to the bottom of things. We need, I need to cut your carbohydrates down. You, you, okay, look, read this. See my coach in two weeks. We need to get on the board. Or we need to get on the ball here. We need to work. They, right. they tend to do it. They tend to do it. And for the ones that and, – and we don't give up on them and we'll take baby steps. For example, there was a study, actually a couple of studies that show that just eating a handful of nuts a day can decrease your chance of cardiovascular disease by around 25%. And that's very close to what the Mediterranean diet did. So if all I did is have them eat a handful of nuts a day and decrease around 25% the risk of cardiovascular disease, well, that's pretty uh, – That's I've done a lot. That's probably better than they're getting from the drugs that we're giving them. Right. So, so we don't have to expect them now. I, 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 you, you do have to assess readiness. But I think if you have a belief that they will do it, okay, right. you're not ready, then when will you be ready? All right, I'll tell you what. I'll see you in a month, and then we'll talk about the elimination diet. Well, could you eliminate dairy? Could you eliminate gluten? How long can you eliminate it? So we, there, you, you kind of dance with – with the expectation and then pull back and see what they're willing to do and then expectation again. And of course, <laughs> never berate them and never, never, never kind of – don't, don't make them feel guilty because that just leads to stress eating. You just say, all right, it's all right. What can we do now? Right. I mean, it, it sounds like it's, it's kind of your traditional investment. If you invest time in the patient, they'll invest time in their health and vice versa. So, uh, you, you know, I – I, I find the same thing with a lot of my patients I do cognitive behavioral therapy with. These are patients that either have never come into the doctor's office, like one of Wada's patients that I've seen before, or uh, some of the other patients that just have absolutely no no desire to do anything about their diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, until I sit down with them. And I, I, I give them homework. I give them the handouts. I see them in a week, a week and they're completely filled out. We, and I'm just floored that they're actually doing these things. It's because someone's actually showing them that investment that they care about what their health is. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's the thing too. Small frequent visits. If I, t- if you, okay, I'm, I'm human. You guys are all human. If your doctor says, all right, this is the diet I need you on. I'll see you in three months. Like, yeah, no way in hell. <laughs> you're going to, yeah, you're going to wait until a week before your blood work. But, but yeah, but if you say, I'll see you in two weeks, let me see your diet. Then yeah, right. they're going to start making those changes. Yeah. And the ones that don't want to do anything at all, 
it's fine. Then you just give them their drug. It takes like 10 seconds. You still get paid the same. <laughs> like, all right, you're not ready. Fine. Good. I'll see you in four months. Thank you so much because you helped pay for my overhead today. <laughs> well, listen, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I think we should, I mean, if you're open to it, I would love to do maybe another, another one or two where we maybe quickly hit through some of the some of the other conditions, like we didn't talk that much about thyroid or adrenal fatigue. And I feel like we're going to take too much of your time if we do that. So I, I, at Tony or Stuart, do you guys have any burning questions that you want to ask that we, things that you think we missed? Stuart? <laughs> right now. Yeah. So uh, I just want to mention that I did a search for mesotherapy on up to date. And I wanted to let you know the two, <laughs> the two articles that I found. The first one was female pattern hair loss treatment and prognosis. And the second one was rapidly growing mycobacterial infections in HIV negative patients. I just thought it was kind of interesting that, um, <laughs> you know, if, if, if you, you can look at, the, you can look for these treatments and yeah, the, the, there's not much on up to date about it, but if, if you go to PubMed, there's thousands of articles. So I, I guess one of the take home points that I have for our listeners, um, whether they're in an, in a GME program or not, don't just rely on up to date. Up to date is not, it does not have the the wealth of information that you might think. It's a good resource, but not. A, you still need to look at the original articles. I got to tell you, you know, I uh, just used uh, QX Read and yeah. Mesotherapy for Local Fat Reduction, two thousand thirteen. Yeah, there you go. I've never journal. I've never done it, by the way. I official, trained in it, but I, I never did it. <laughs> you, you wimped out because of the malpractice thing, huh? Okay. I probably would whip out too. Yeah, I was intrigued by the, the the other the other things because everything I had known was just pretty much I had to second I had to kind of rethink. Okay, so Doctor Elumen, did I get it right that time? That was pretty <laughs> yes. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell my family to call me that from now on. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> okay, Doctor E, uh, can you tell? Do you have any requests or parting words of wisdom for our listeners? Or take-home points. Yes. So number one, the the father of modern, one of the fathers of modern day medicine, Avicenna or Ibn Sina, the Persian polymath. He had a really eloquent quote that I'm going to just kind of paraphrase, basically saying that in dealing with sickness and health, you ought to know the root cause of sickness and health. So don't just treat people and not realize the underlying. Try to try to read the pathophysiology. Try to understand what the pathophysiology is because you may actually be able to 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 help your patients with 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 things other than just that laundry list that you find in up to date or other resources like that. The other thing is is that it's not just genes; it's genes and environment. So we need to really take our time to work on the environment and 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 and. Yes, your genes are the cards you were dealt, but there in most people, there's an optimal diet and lifestyle that could live to be disease free. And then, and then patients, I think we mentioned this, that patients are willing to change if you expect them to change. Mm -hmm. They're definitely not willing to change if you expect them not to change. And the, the, the biggest thing is you don't have to do the research alone. I mean, jo join the functional medicine organization or one of the integrative medicine organizations, wherever you feel like your philosophy is really in sync with. And just um, just take advantage of, of, of the, the group and the brotherhood and the, and, and the fact that you're not alone. Well, 
I, I want to apologize again for mispronouncing your name about 10 times. And uh, no, you're doing I, good, man. You're doing good. <laughs> thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. I mean, we definitely need to have you back on the show to talk about, to talk about more, yeah, uh, more I, of the I, functional I, medicine. But it has been an absolute pleasure having you on, and um, you know, I'm 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 glad to have had the opportunity to talk with you. Well, thank you, thank you, you guys as well. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, and don't forget to leave us a review. You can contact us on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Tony Sideri. I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. I've been Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. <laughs>